chapter 4 is where we are this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 4. It'll be in your bulletin also on the screen for you. Also in the Pew Bible that's right in front of you, Genesis 4 verse 1. I happened to see our uh, Facebook, Instagram post about the service today. We like to remind folks that it's coming up and uh, I saw that we had sent that out and that the name of the sermon was The Way of Cain. And uh, I just had this moment because I momentarily forgot that I called the sermon that. Um, and I just realized, you know, that's a really negative kind of title. <laughs> not very inviting, uh, not very encouraging. If you know anything about the story of Cain and Abel, which we're going to be reading today. And really, you know, that caused me to think about, well, the rest of our time in Genesis is going to be a little dark. Genesis 1 and 2 are beautiful, foundational pictures of the good world that God has created. And just starting in Genesis 3 through chapter 11, which is where we're cutting this series off, things go pretty dark. This is the world that, this, that sin brings us into. And so I, I say that as a way to prepare ourselves. Certainly, alongside the darkness is the grace of God and His hand and His mercy and His restraint. And we're going to see that and we're going to focus on that because there is hope even in this dark story. But there's also the darkness that we just need to confront that sin introduces into the world. And it begins here and things get pretty bad through the flood all the way up to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. It's a picture of the world without God's way. And so today we begin by looking at Cain and Abel, the way of Cain. And let's read the story together. Genesis 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. 
Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This is the word of the Lord. There's an old uh, Indian folk tale that I'm guessing that many of you have heard because it's often used in the context of a math classroom in elementary school. The story is called One Grain of Rice. And it tells the story of a uh, greedy, a wise, but, but scheming Raja, the, the leader, uh, leader in India. And he hoards all the rice of the land. He has this uh, policy where he says, I'm going to collect your rice first. All the people give me your rice and then I will distribute it out on an equal basis. And so they give him the rice, but then he's very reluctant to give it back out and he hoards it for himself. And one day, a young girl named Rani is following him and she ends up doing a service for him. She does a good deed and he is impressed with her, this Raja, and he gives her anything that she wants she can have. And this is, we're told, a very clever girl. And Rani asks for one grain of rice, knowing that as soon as she asked for it, he would want to give her more than that. And so he does. He follows up with her request, knowing, like, why would you want one single grain of rice? I can give you anything. And then she continues in her modesty to say, well, why don't you give me a single grain of rice every day and every day double the amount of rice that you give me. So on the first day, give me one grain. And then the second day, give me two grains, four grains, eight grains, and so on, just for 30 days. This seems like a reasonable request from the Raja, so he begins to give her these grains of rice. A third of the way through, day 10, she only has, even still, doubling every day, only 512 grains of rice. And the Raja is beginning to feel very confident in his gift to her. Not even enough for really a big bowl full of rice. Continues day 15, we're halfway there. He still only has to give her, in this doubling method, 16,384 grains of rice. A lot. Maybe a bag full. He's still confident, but as the days progress, you can probably see where this story is going. The doubling becomes more and more, and it begins to really hurt. And on the 30th day, 
he is forced to give her 536,870,912 grains of rice. And by that point, after all of the doubling, she has reached over a billion grains of rice and has successfully taken back the rice from the Raja, and then she gives it to the people. I'm not drawing any economic implications from that. You can if you want to. The point of the story from a math perspective and from just a, you know, generally what's the story about is that the small things that are easy to ignore can become great if they are allowed to compound, if they're allowed to double, if they're allowed to grow over time. This is a magical mathematical principle. Sometimes we talk about compound interest, which Albert Einstein is said to have said that it is the eighth wonder of the world. The fact that things can grow mathematically and then there can be growth on that growth and that that compounding over time is something that starts out so small and yet it has this huge force over time. It becomes like a freight train. It's hard to start, but once it starts and starts moving in the right direction, it becomes almost impossible to stop. And what the passage that we have before us today teaches us is that sin has that effect as well. What seems small, if left untended, becomes a massive beast of a problem. It becomes like the mythical hydra in Greek mythology. The beast that has multiple heads and when you cut off one head, it grows two in its place and so you are trapped. You can't fight it because the more you fight it, seemingly, the more it tends to grow. And a beast is actually a good analogy. It's the way that the Scriptures talk about this growing sin. In verse 7, it says that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The crouching at the door, that's a feline type image. That is a beast, a tiger, a lion, maybe a saber-toothed tiger. I don't know what's around then, but like some massive beast. That's what sin is. And it grows. This is the story of the first murder in the world, but it's more than that, it is also the way of sin. It is the way of Cain. That's what the New Testament calls it in the book of Jude. Short little one chapter book in the New Testament in verse 11 says that the way of sin is the way of Cain. It's not innocent. It's beast-like. It grows. It has a way. And what seems innocent at first Starting out a chapter with two sacrifices, two offerings to the Lord, seemingly just a normal part of life. And there's sin involved, though, in Cain's intention in his heart. And that sin causes him to be angry. And that anger causes him to lure Abel out. And it causes him to kill him. And so there's murder. And then all the way to the end of the chapter, we have the very last words Cain's revenge has compounded. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You see how quickly it compounds. 
But there's something else at work in the passage as well. It is the grace and the restraint of God. And really, when you think about chapters 4 through 11 of Genesis, and when you think about really chapters 4 through the end of the Scriptures and the struggle of sin and the compounding of sin that happens in the world, there is always something else at work, and that is the abounding grace of God. Because even though this seems like it's spiraling out of control, 77-fold this murder, what pounds and abounds even more is the grace of God. What I want us to see today is this. Sin compounds, but grace abounds even more. You might recognize those phrases from the book of Romans. We'll get there. But that's what this passage teaches. Sin compounds, but grace abounds even more. First, let's look at this. Sin compounds. What I want us to do is quickly walk through this passage looking at the steps, there's seven of them, that Cain goes down and that increases like a beast his sin. And the first step is intending. Intending. Verse 3, In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now why, we might ask, is Abel's sacrifice regarded by God while Cain's is not? And there's been many different theories put forward. Some have said that probably it was because Abel's was a blood sacrifice. It was an animal sacrifice, and God delights more in the sacrifice of the animal than the grain. I don't think that is true. God commands many different kinds of sacrifices in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament. Some of them grain, some of them animal. I don't think that is it. We're told why here, even if it's just in a subtle way, why Abel's sacrifice was accepted. It's because of intent. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. He brought what was first in his heart to God. He was signaling then that he was meeting God on his own terms, acknowledging that God had given him everything, that everything that he had was a leftover of God's grace. And so his intention was to honor God as the first place. But Cain comes with his own agenda, his own intent, meeting God on his own terms. We know that this wasn't just a favoritism game where God liked Abel and not Cain for multiple reasons. But we're told in 1 John, the book of 1 John in the New Testament, a little look into the heart of Cain. John tells us there, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. There was something inside of Cain and an evil intent he had towards his brother and really ultimately because of his intent towards God. He brought a wrong sacrifice. Proverbs 21, verse 27, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? Cain had an evil 
intent in his sacrifice? Is intention to sin, sin? Yes, it is. This is different than temptation to sin. We know Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. That He was tempted, the author of Hebrews tells us, in every way without sin. So you can be tempted without sin, but intention is different. That moment when sin moves from temptation to intent, then the beast begins to grow. Intending. Secondly, desiring. Verse 5, So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Cain immediately runs to the emotion of anger. And it is an anger that is sinful. Anger is not always sinful since the Scriptures tells us to be angry and do not sin. But here it is. He's angry at the acceptance of Abel. Really, he's angry at God. It's this internal desire. His intention then moves to a place of desiring. Murderous thoughts. Jesus tells us in the New Testament that if we have these thoughts about our brother, then we've murdered them already in our hearts. Right? That's what's happening right here. It's moving to desire. And we know that this is the way that sin works. We're told kind of the outline of sin in James chapter 1 where he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is exactly what happens here. This desire conceives. It gives birth to sin, and sin brings death death there is intending there is desiring there is thirdly plotting told it's somewhat brief in verse 8 Cain spoke to Abel and his spoke to Abel his brother there's a suggestion here that what Cain does is he lures him out into the field where it's easy for him to murder this intention gives way to desire gives way to a plan we see that planning to sin is also sin. Look at the book of Proverbs where the, the evil person is the one who plots, who plans, oh, they will pass by me on the way. I can attack them there. I can rob them there. Beware of that person who plots. And then there's the sinning. The fourth step here is the sin of murder. All sin leads to death ultimately, but this sin leads to death immediately. It's the first death, the first murder, and the first fratricide, what we call the killing of a brother. But when you think about it, all murder is homicide and all murder is fratricide because we are all made in the image of God, every single person. And since we come from the same place, we're all members of one another. And so Cain rises up and kills Abel in the field. And it cannot be covered up and it cannot be looked over. Verse 10, And the Lord said, What have you done? 
the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God is the author of life and He hears when that life is spilled onto the ground. Sin compounds even to the point of taking someone else's life who's made in the image of God. It compounds and it compounds and we see it compounding still with so much death that we, we have become accustomed to death as we see people dying and see people on the news and this person's been killed and this person's been shot by the police and this person has murdered their family. 125 million people from 1890 to 1990, the bloodiest century. When we look at the wars, the gulags, the oppression, every time, every time, no matter the circumstances, no matter if it's justified or not, every time that blood is spilled, it cries to God from the ground and He hears. What begins as intention when it grows up becomes death. And sin does this. And we would think and we would hope that that would be the end of the cycle, right? Of sin. The end of the compounding. But that's only step four. We've still got a few more. Because after Cain kills Abel, he hardens himself against God. Hardening. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain hardens himself against the effects of sin by lying and abandoning responsibility. He lies. That itself is evidence of the compounding nature of sin. When Adam and Eve were confronted with their sin and God comes to them in the cool of the day and He calls them out. Yes, they try to hide from Him, but they would never lie to Almighty God. But here, He lies. I do not know, He says to God. Am I my brother's keeper? He abandons his responsibility for the care of his family member. Must I really take responsibility for this? This is the way that sin works. It's devious. It not only causes us to act outside of God's way, but then to defend that. Or as the author of Hebrews tells us, that we should not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The sixth step is separating God or Cain moves away from the presence of God. Verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he named, called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Cain goes and builds a different life outside of God, a different legacy, naming cities after himself. He sets himself up east of Eden. The name of a John Steinbeck novel, not a particularly bright and happy one, by the way. Not that there are any that are. 
East of Eden becomes a symbol of a life away from God. The further east you move, the further away from the presence of God, and God lets him do it. Let's him be successful. He has all these sons. They found many important things in the world. The makers of, of uh, stringed instruments. The, the makers of uh, tools. The one who dwells in tents. The shepherds. He lets him build a life apart from himself. You think that would be the end of it, but no. The last step is this, and the compounding of sin is exalting sin. That's exactly what Lamech does the fifth generation after Cain. Lamech says to his wife and boasts, his wives and boasts to them, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now sin has reached its apex. We've gone from intending to sin all the way to rejoicing and delighting when it happens. There's only five generations between Lamech and Cain, but Lamech calls for 77 times the revenge, which lets you know a little bit of how the math of sin works. So what do we do with this? How do we stop the compounding of sin? Obviously, I've talked this morning about a specific sin of murder and how Cain's line, the way of Cain, leads to this establishing of sin in the world. And yet, we all know that those seven steps can apply to us. That we can let sin compound. What do we do with it? Well, we're told in the passage that we must master it. Verse 7, sin crouching is at it's crouching at the door. It dis, its desire is contrary to you, but you must master it. You must tame the beast. How do you stop the compounding? Well, how do you stop anything that compounds? You, you interrupt the growth. You know, the, go back to the story of Ronnie and her rice. Do you know that fully half of the rice that she received was on the last day. Take one year of growth out of a compound interest calculator. One year of negativity and see what it does to the end results. We stop the compounding by stopping the growth. How do we do that? First, we need to see that the bad news is that God holds Cain responsible for this sin. He does. He holds him responsible for the sacrifice that was wrong. He holds him responsible for his desires. He holds him responsible for his plotting, his action, for his hardening, for his separating, and ultimately for his grandson's rebellion Sin is his responsibility. And he tells them this. If you, do not, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This is your responsibility. If you don't do well, it is your responsibility as well. Sin crouches at the door. It is on Cain first 
And we need to see that. It is on us. We are not able to do it though. And that is the unique thing about our Christian faith is that the grace of God is what enables us to stop the compounding effects of sin. Because the Bible teaches that though sin compounds and though it seems like it's going off the rails, grace abounds more. Romans 5, verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounds. Where do we see it? Here. In this passage, we see it in two ways. We see a mark of restraint and a model of faithfulness. First, a mark of restraint. God places His mark on Cain. And we need to see what a great grace this is, not only to him, but to us as well. Verse 14, sorry, verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Cain, just like Adam before him, when he's confronted with the Lord, is not in a position to bargain. We talked about this when God comes and He asks questions of Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? What is this that you have done? He didn't have to ask those questions. The questions themselves were a grace because he'd already decided what would be done and told them what would be done if that was to happen. And here, God owes Cain nothing. He's not in a position to bargain, but in his moment of pleading, Cain receives God's restraint. He gets a mark from God. What was the mark? We have no idea. Some have speculated a tattoo. Some have speculated a hairstyle. That doesn't make sense to me. One rabbi even said a dog um, that walked around with him. I don't know where that comes from, but that's pretty cool. And we don't know what the mark was, but something signified that God held Cain. Cain. There is not one single positive mention of Cain in the Scriptures. He is the son of the evil one in the New Testament. He is the picture of everything evil. The way of Cain is the opposite way of God. There is nothing redeeming about him and no indication that he redeemed himself at all. And yet God places His mark of safety on him. He protects him from other people. Who are these other people, we wonder? Surely there weren't that many people on the earth. There's different theories about that. I'm not going to go into that today. But it's a safe bet to say that most of the people that were there, whoever they were, would be connected to Abel somehow. There was a natural bent of blood revenge for Abel. This righteous man. And yet God's mark restrains the evil. 
Later, He would continue to restrain evil. And God continues to restrain evil with different marks on the world. The mark of the law of God is a tool to restrain evil in the world as He gives the law of God to Moses. And one of the parts of that law would be to create something called a city of refuge. Cities of refuge placed at various places. What were these cities of refuge? There were places where people could run to if they had taken someone's life, even accidentally if the axe head falls off of the axe handle and it hits someone and it kills them. And even if it's an accident, you run to the city of refuge. Why? Because blood cries out for blood. And if someone's blood is taken by man, his blood will be shed. The Scriptures say that. And so if... Where does it end? If you take that person's life and then they have a right to take the other person's life and then that person's family wants to take that person's life and it just compounds until there is nothing left. That's what sin does. Sin compounds, but the grace of God abounds because He restrains it. He says it will stop here. He restrains the evil. By not demanding the blood of Cain right away. And this is a grace to him and a grace to the world, even though he nor the world recognize it as such. God allows him to leave and even to prosper. And yes, he does prosper cities and wealth and families. And God allows it but He restrains the evil. And this is a grace for us as well. No matter how bad your life is, and some of us are going through many hard things, I'm certain of this. You can imagine it being worse. If God had continued to let blood spill on the earth, there would be nothing left. And yet, He restrains it. He restrains it even in His questions. The questions again are a grace. He says three questions to Cain like he had three for Adam. Why are you angry? Where is your brother? What have you done? And those questions, though they exposed sin just like Adam's did, they also give an opportunity for grace. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Return to me. Cain does not. There's no indication that he does. But he gives us that grace as well. The grace of his restraint. And it comes to us this morning, no matter what sin is in your life, and you can ask those same questions of yourself, ultimately this one, what have you done? And you can respond differently than what Cain does. There is an opportunity for God's restraint to be received by you this morning. We lean into those restraints by asking ourselves those questions. Why am I doing this? Why do I continue to let this grow? Why is this so much a part of my life? Why do I love this sin so much? Any number of questions can be used to draw us back to God. And to the extent that you feel that this morning, that you hear His voice wooing you back to Him, that is His grace restraining you from what you could be doing and bringing you back. He gives us a mark of restraint, but He also gives us a model of faithfulness.
And we'll close with this. Don't forget about Abel. The Bible has nothing negative to say about Abel. He is righteous. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He still speaks his righteousness, his sacrifice. If you know, that's from Hebrews 11. If you know something about the book of Hebrews, that's the great hall of faith passage. It is the series of faithful characters and scriptures, the ones who continue to speak to us, to present to us a model of faithfulness. And scripture says that that's a great cloud of witness. It's a, it's a cloud that says, keep going, keep pressing on, keep working towards this righteousness. This group of characters still speaks. And Abel still speaks. The one whose blood cries out from the ground speaks through his faith. But there is one who speaks louder. And whose blood speaks louder than Abel's. That's the next chapter. Hebrews chapter 12. And to Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If Abel was a model of faithfulness, and he was, then Jesus is a greater model still, a better model. A picture of though though sin compounds, grace abounds even more. It speaks better than even the faithful sacrifice of Abel. Anyone in that great long line of believers is faithful, but he was faithful even more. If Abel's blood on the ground shows us how wrong things can get without God, then Christ's blood dripping off of the cross shows us how right God can make our wrong. It speaks better than this blood. If you want to stop the compounding of sin in your life, you will cover yourself with the blood of Jesus. You will hide away in His love. You will remind your heart of who He is. He will be to you a model of faithfulness and the One in whom, when you are united with Him, covers you, speaks for you. His sacrifice is ultimately the only One who does well. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Well, as great as Abel was as a model of faithfulness and what Cain could have aspired to if he had looked at his brother, there is no way that he could have done well enough. Cain was given that chance to see Abel's faithfulness. And we can look at Abel's faithfulness, but we can see ultimately Christ's faithfulness. That we, when we are covered by His blood, are not just inspired to stop the compounding of sin, which we are, but we're also already spoken for because He speaks over us our acceptance. And in Him, we have done well. And in Him, our sacrifice has been accepted. Let's pray.